Good morning, everyone. I'm reading from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 3 this morning, starting at verse 1 and going through to verse 21. <clears throat> the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Marcah, daughter of Talmai, king of Gesher. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Apatal. And the sixth, Ethran, the son of David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his army and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David. Yet now you accuse me of an offensive now you accuse me of an offence involving this woman? May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath, and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. Ishbosheth did not dare say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you. But I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife, Michal, who I am betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go back home. So he went back. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, For some time you have wanted to make David your king. Now do it, for the Lord promised David, By my servant David I will rescue my people, Israel, from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to the Benjamites in person. Then he went to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel and the whole tribe of Benjamin wanted to do. When Abner who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron. David prepared a feast for him and his men. Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king, so they may make a covenant with you, and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Wonderful. Thank you, Jenny, and good morning, everyone. Please do keep your Bibles open. I'll lead us briefly in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak powerfully to us in your word, the scriptures, and in the power of your Holy Spirit at work in and amongst us. 
Please, Father, help us to concentrate this morning, to tremble at your word and to delight at your word, that we might become more and more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, one of my pet hates, of which there are many, is when you get preachers or Bible teachers or authors um, who misuse the Bible by putting us, the reader, into the shoes of one of the characters as if that's why it was written. The classic example, the example par excellence of this misuse of the Bible is with David and Goliath. You might have even heard a sermon along those lines, lines, right? You're David and you've got this big problem in your life. That's the big Goliath, whatever that problem or that stressor is. And if you have enough faith in God and you run towards that problem like a kid with a stone in a sling, you will overcome through your faith in the Lord, right? News for you, you are not David. That is not why that part of the Bible was written. Another classic one that you hear sometimes, Jesus is walking on the water And and Peter says, if it's you, tell me to come. And Peter starts walking on the water towards Jesus. You know the story, right? But he sees the the, the storm, the wind of the wave, and he he starts to doubt and he starts to drown. And so the preacher or the book says something like, what are the storms in your life? You know, what is it that takes away your faith from Jesus? That is not the reason that was written in the scriptures. It annoys me no end how people... In sort of insert ourselves into the story of characters as if that's what the text was written for when it's cl- uh, clearly not. Now, why am I telling you about one of the, my many pet hates, this one in particular this morning? Well, because you might enjoy the fact that I'm about to shoot myself in the foot a little bit mildly. Because as followers of Jesus, I'm convinced that it's actually helpful for us to see, in this isolated case, (laughs) that there is a little bit of Abner in each and every one of us. There is a little bit of Abner in all of us as followers of Jesus and also, incidentally, as people who are yet to be followers of Jesus, but definitely in Christians. Now, why do I make this claim against against my better judgment? And if I'm right, what should we do about it? Is that a problem that there is a bit of Abner in all of us? The answer is both yes and no. But I'm not going to spill the beans just yet. Just keep that question in mind, right? What do we do about the fact there's a bit of Abner in all of us? Keep that in mind as we come now to our next instalment in this fascinating series of uh, To Samuel. Now, uh, in case you're not up to speed, we're at the stage of Israel's history where David, the king chosen according to God's own heart, is inevitably coming to power in Israel, because that's what God said would happen. We get a summary statement in the opening verse of chapter 3, which says, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. That's the period we're now in, in the history of God's people, and that's a summary statement. But what about the specifics then? How exactly did the house of David grow stronger and stronger? Well, the first and really easy and obvious answer is that, well, David increased his family. At this point, if you remember, Saul is dead and so were his sons who would have been considered eligible successors and those red crosses mean they're dead. But Saul's youngest son, Ishbosheth, 
had survived the battle of Gilboa, my guess is that he was probably too young to fight at the time. We don't know, but that he's normally put last in the genealogy, so you assume he's probably was the youngest. And Abner, the commander of Saul's army, had made Ishbosheth the king over Israel as a rival to King David, who so far is only recognised in Judah. But you can also see from this that Saul's family line is obviously quite depleted, whereas David's family happens to be greatly increasing. So verse 2, sons were born to David in Hebron. His first was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal at Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the sons of Abital. The sixth, Ithrian, the son of David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Now, as we learned last week... Polygamy is not strictly forbidden in the Old Testament, but it is certainly not upheld as the ideal. Uh, The ideal, of course, is one man and one woman for life, which would describe the vast majority of marriages within Israel. And by the time of the New Testament, that is actually uh, stipulated by God. David's many wives and concubines, as well as the children born to them, will in the not-too-distant future cause all sorts of problems for David and his kingdom. As some of those names were there, you might have gone, oh, yeah, I know what happens in the future with those people. It doesn't end well. But for the time being, and from a strictly empire build kind of angle, the increase of David's descendants is certainly a way that his house was strengthened in contrast to the dying house of Saul. And when you consider that all this happened at Hebron, we're told. And you remember that Hebron is actually the the first bit of the promised land that Abraham had claimed to. Well, you can't help but, but wonder if a son of David will eventually be the means by which the blessing promised to Abraham that will come to all the earth will actually end up happening. But I get ahead of myself. It's a common problem. The other way David's kingdom prevailed over Saul's was that Saul's great military commander, namely Abner, saw reality. He saw the reality that David really was God's chosen ruler. And so Abner transferred from the house of Saul to the house of David. Uh, Abner's presented to us as a rather self-interested and power-hungry individual. Verse 6, during the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul, which we know to be the dying house of Saul, but he's strengthening his own position. Like many influential leaders, Abner was keen to continue gaining power, probably for his own advantage. So he did something that in that time and place, in that context, could have been perceived possibly even as a claim to the throne or at least as a claim to be the second most powerful ruler over Israel. What was that thing he did? Well, basically, he slept with one of the late King Saul's concubines. 
That's a way of saying, I have the authority of, of the king, basically. Verse 7, now Saul had had a concubine named Ritzpah, daughter of Aya. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why did you sleep with my father's concubine? It's not so much that Ishbosheth is questioning Abner's morality, but his authority. Abner doesn't deny the charge. It looks a little bit dubious when you first read it, but you read it a couple of times, you're like, yeah, he definitely did do it, right? He doesn't deny the charge. But he certainly doesn't like his status being questioned. And frankly, he explodes with a, an almost narcissistic rage when the accusation comes his way. But his outburst happens in such a way, and I'm sure you probably noticed this as it was read, the outburst happens in such a way that make us, makes us think, it's kind of like he's using this as a convenient excuse to move up the ranks by transferring to David's side. So from verse 8, here's how it happens. Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he answered, am I a dog's head on Judah's side? The head probably being a leader, dogs if you're the, those evil Judahites. Am I a leader on Judah's side? Like I'm a leader on your side. This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David. Yet now you accuse me of an offence involving this woman that I don't deny. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to be a Sheba. And Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him, and I bet he would be too. Notice Abner's sense of self-importance and power. He speaks as if at any time he could have handed Ishbosheth over to David, which when you think about it is probably true. And he also even speaks as if he will be the vital player in God's plan to bring about the reign of David over all Israel. And that is certainly not true. He is completely dispensable. Ishbosheth is right to fear Abner because he genuinely is, I think, at the top of the power pyramid, which is probably why it's certain that he did sleep with his father's concubine. But of course, he wants more. Those who want power will never have enough. And he sees the reality that David really will be the ruler of all Israel. Hence, we rightly get the sense that his anger, his outburst here, also probably provided an, a convenient excuse for him to jump ship. See, despite Abner's obvious pride and sense of self-importance and, and being a self-made man and whatever, he still sees the reality for what it is. And he knows that you cannot successfully oppose God's chosen king. What you can do, even in this case, for very selfish, sinful motives is join him, because you can't win against him. And it says he seeks to join David, that he starts to learn that David is genuinely in charge. This is probably eye-opening for Abner. Abner might have thought that he'd still be the biggest player, the biggest fish in the pond in his dealings with David, but he starts to learn that David has actual authority. Here's how it plays out, verse 12. Uh, then Abner sent messengers 
on his behalf to say to David, whose land is it? Make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. So basically, David, get me on your side and I'll make your kingship legit, just like I did with Ishbosheth. But look how David responds and totally calls all the shots. Verse 13, good, David said, I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. And the demand he makes, by the way, is not unreasonable because he actually paid for this demand. Continuing verse 13, do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. But David didn't even wait for Abner to deliver on this demand. Verse 14, then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. That's what every woman wants to hear of the romantic man. You know, he actually went over above, it was 200 Philistine forcing him. Anyway, verse 15. So Ishbosheth, who now is very weakened and knows where he stands, gave orders and had her taken away from her husband Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said, Go back home. So he went back. Now, I know we get distracted when we read this. Surely we want to know more about this relationship between Paltiel and Michal and, you know, why is there sort of no comment on the rightness or wrongness of, of this sort of horrible situation of the husband wanting his wife to remain? Um, it makes me wonder, did Paltiel know that Michal was actually already married to David? And when David had fled earlier to join the Philistines, Saul went, well, stuff you, I'm going to you know, use my kingly rule for a dodgy end. Hey, girl, you're going to go be with him? She was probably unwilling, I don't know. If he knew that, he should not have agreed, so maybe he is morally culpable. But no matter what, the clear message is you don't mess with marriage. That's just, like, so blatantly obvious. It's no surprise that our culture really wants to show its rebellion against God by precisely messing with the thing that God sets up and it only ever results in this kind of tragedy. But you see, the thrust here is not about that. The thrust here is about how David calls the shots, in great contrast even to Abner. He won't be a puppet king. He truly is the Lord's anointed. And he speaks with the authority that God gives to God's anointed. So the real question is, will Abner learn to serve David, not because he sees it as advantageous, to himself, but simply because he learns that David is God's chosen Messiah. And would you believe, I actually like to think it's the latter. I think he will learn to serve David because he's God's chosen king. Uh, I like to think that especially because as he goes about his new task, Abner gets confronted not just by the authority of God's chosen king, but also by his amazing grace. Look at verse 17, the next verse. Abner conferred with all the elders of Israel and said, for some time you've wanted to make David your king. Very diplomatic, you know, very political. You guys have really wanted this, even though 
he wanted. Now do it. For the Lord promised David, by my servant David, I'll rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to the Benjamites in person, which is significant because remember Saul had been a Benjamite, so they were probably the most loyal. So if he wins them, he'll, he'll win the lot. Then he went to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel and the whole tribe of Benjamin wanted to do. So Abner went around doing his whole king-making thing, but then he went to report to David in person where things were up to. Now, having been in the house of Saul and having seen that David is no pushover and, you know, not knowing how he's going to be received, Abner is a little bit worried or at least is not sure whether or not he should be worried about coming into the presence of David. And by the way, if you remember from last week, um, Asahel, the brother of Joab, who's the, David's military commander, Asahel had been killed by Abner. He was the one that did that horrible, you know, spear coming out the back thing, right? Now, Abner, to be fair, tried to avoid doing that. He says, don't come after me, come after me. But he still, in the end, killed him, right? And that, that's someone who would have been important to David. And so Abner's now approaching David, just wondering whether he should be guarded. As a matter of fact, he, he is literally guarded. Verse 20, when Abner, who had 20 men with him, we are told, came to David at Hebron, i.e., even with the agreement in place, he was tentative about meeting David face to face. He made sure he was guarded. But when that happened, the Lord's anointed, who has the real authority, also displayed the grace of God. Continuing in verse 20, David prepared a feast for him and his men. There's an open arms welcome. Even for people who were once enemies and who are rightfully fearful of approaching him. There's an open welcome for all who acknowledge the lordship of God's anointed. The heart of David, like the heart of God, is to actually show mercy and grace and welcome people into his kingdom, which, of course, I can't help but show that's a shadow of the true Messiah, a shadow of what Jesus is like. So... Verse 21, then Abner said to David, let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my Lord the King, so that they may make a covenant with you and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. I can't help but think of that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the one guy who knew the grace of God went away justified. This, by the way, is the first time that David gets referred to as both Lord and King. And it's by someone full of pride and self-importance who yet recognised the truth of God's word and has now transferred into the kingdom of the Lord's anointed. I suspect that with these last words in our passage, we're to see the hint of a change in Abner. Maybe, I'm not 100% sure, but maybe he is subduing his pride in order to actually serve God's king. And we would hope that from there on he would continue to subdue 
his pride. And that would make perfect sense because subduing pride and continuing to subdue pride, that's part of our ongoing sanctification, is a, is a necessary task of those who know the reality that God's Messiah is Lord. And it's actually because they're confronted with both the amazing authority and the even more amazing grace that God's true anointed shows, even towards his enemies, that they can do this sort of thing. Now, maybe the case that there's someone here or someone watching online uh, who hasn't yet seen the reality that God's ultimate Messiah, the great son of David, the, the Messiah, who is, of course, Jesus Christ, is, in fact, the one that God has put in charge over all people and all things. And his kingdom will inevitably be established on earth as it is in heaven. And so the question I ask to you, if that happens to be you, is, and, and the question, more importantly, that God asks you, frankly, is will you see reality? God made it easy to recognise who the true ruler is. Abner took a bit of time for him. He had to work out, yeah, Ishbosheth's going nowhere. I can see the God's words to David. Right? But God made it really, really, really easy for us who the true ruler is. He, he raised him from the dead. Can't go past that sort of thing, right? Will you see the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord and will you be on the right side of history by being on the right side of Jesus? If even a self-interested, power-hungry guy like Abner can see who God has chosen to be his ruler, well then surely you can too. And if you do see the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord, will you, like Abner, confront the pride that prevents you from transferring into his kingdom? You might think that the reason you remain outside of Christ is that you're not convinced of the truth of the gospel. What is the truth of the gospel? It's that you're a sinner deserving of God's judgment. Jesus kindly, graciously took that judgment on your behalf when he suffered and died on the cross. God raised him up to show that he is truly Lord and that he is soon to come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. But far more often than not, the reason someone won't transfer into the kingdom of Jesus has nothing to do with a lack of understanding of the gospel or of the need to be more convinced. Far more often than not, the real reason people won't come into Jesus' kingdom is because of their pride, their self-importance. Like Abner, they would rage at the idea that their self-achieved status means nothing and actually needs to be given up in order that they come to know the one who is truly in charge, and it ain't you. If you've been around here for a while and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, it's almost certainly not because you haven't heard enough, but because you're not willing to let go of your own self-importance. Out of his tremendous love and grace, Jesus calls you to deny yourself to take up your cross and to follow him and for those that do they're the ones that God is graciously transferring into his 
kingdom. And in case you didn't know, the kingdom you transfer out of, it's not the house of Saul, the kingdom you transfer out of in order to become a follower of Jesus is not the kingdom of neutrality. It's not even really the kingdom you've made for yourself. It's the kingdom of Satan. Either you give up your pride and follow Jesus or else you remain not spiritually neutral, but you remain in the domain of darkness. Colossians 1.13, speaking about Christians, says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But brothers and sisters, for those who have seen reality, who have taken up our cross to follow Jesus, it's imperative that we ask ourselves the question, how will I continue to confront my pride? This is one of those nasty things that is always more important than you're able to see that it is. See, one of the problems with pride is the way that it kind of manifests itself is in a way that you can't see it, but other people can. It's one of the reasons God is so keen on having Christians always meet together regularly. It's one of the reasons we push stuff like growth group and when someone's always kind of avoiding being with other Christians, you're sort of worried about their spiritual health and you're right. Because there is stuff about me that I can't possibly know, but other people can And when it comes to the way that pride manifests itself from my life, I actually need to get to the point where I can say to someone trusted, oi, you've got to tell me how I'm going in this, that or the other, and I'm not going to be angry at you if you say something negative, right? If you sort of can't be there, you you need to arrive there. That's your ongoing sanctification. That's a really sort of helpful point. Because you can get to the stage, especially if you've been a professional or you've, you know, uh, had, had a long sort of successful career at the top where you've told other people what to do. So you get to the point where no one's actually going to tell you honestly where you're failing to let Jesus be Lord and you yourself have the pride taking over. This is actually a very important thing. Uh, Older people, people who have been in the church a long time, this is especially important because, frankly, I don't want to tell someone who's twice my age something that's going to be harsh or difficult for them, right? I need to be invited. But sometimes you might not even think to invite that kind of thing. Uh, speaking of which, another way I think we see it manifested, you know, generally, and I, I want to really, I don't know how I can stress this hardly, hard enough. What I'm about to say, I'm saying with maximum gentleness. <laughs> I just, I, I can, you know, make myself lower or something. So I, I don't know how, how, how to convey the gentleness that I, that I feel with which I want to say this. Um, uh, we have a culture problem, and I've said it before, and Jono said it before, and it's still a problem. We have a culture people, problem people being tardy for our church gatherings, showing up late. There's a whole bunch of people that arrive here at 8 o'clock. They put out the signs. There's people that set up the tech stuff. There's a the music. Yeah, at the end of the first song, there's still people walking in, right? Now, the reason it's hard for me to say this is because there's, like I myself have been tardy in the past and you could have had, you know, your kids have been giving you a nightmare that morning or, you know, the one time that people come late to church or whatever and then, oh, the pastor's telling us off for being like, no, 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 gently, okay? <laughs> but there is something, and I'm as guilty of this in other scenarios, okay? Three fingers at me. There is something that gets communicated when that's off in the way and, and it's something that says people ought to be on my time rather than me on their time. And, and, and that's quite a statement of pride, isn't it? It's kind of like, well, 
if this suits me, it's about what, what suits me and not what suits other people. It's about Abner gaining power in the kingdom rather about submitting to the one who's actually in charge. That can be the attitude, can't it? Yeah, just, that's just one little thing I thought of, right? Don't think to yourself, oh, it doesn't matter when I meet with the people of God because, you know, I want to sleep in or make an extra coffee or whatever. They're not on my time. I, I, I'm on God's time and God tells me to love other people. That should be a culture of church that we're not always... Plus, there's all sorts of benefit in arriving early. Newcomers and visitors always get there early, etc., and you can welcome people. You've heard it. You know what I'm talking about. But you see how that works, right? That little sort of question. About, is the way that I kind of choose to function and operate a way that says I'm actually more important than the other people who the King of Kings says are to be considered more important? Is, is that an area of pride that I need to, 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 to confront? There's probably a million other areas, I can't do them all now, and if we did, I'd be here for six hours and uh, you'd all be late for everything else. Let me conclude our time together in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true Lord's anointed, who you have shown to be King by his resurrection from the dead, and who has all the power and authority in heaven and earth, and has the absolute right to demand that we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, and yet who is so profoundly gracious and merciful that for even proud sinners... He will welcome them with open arms when they recognise his rule. Father, may we who have come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour never forget the importance of confronting our sense of self-importance and our pride. May we, out of obedience to him, go about the task that he would set for us in a way that gives him the honour and glory and that removes any sense of self-importance from us and we pray that in all the areas where this would apply to us individually that you would open our eyes and help us open the eyes of one another that we might better serve him and we ask these things in Jesus name. Amen.